Welcome to the Gangster Museum of America After Dark. And now, here's your host, Robert Raines. Thank you again, Steve Taylor. Our guest tonight is a friend of mine and a legal consultant of mine. He's an attorney, the Honorable Colonel Lynn Davis, native of Texarkana, Arkansas. Claimed to fame as being uh, in the robbery and homicide division of Los Angeles Federal Bureau of Investigation. Also a U.S. Marshal. But tonight we're going to talk about his duties as uh, the head of the Arkansas State Police, which stirred up quite a commotion here in Hot Springs in the late 60s. Well, uh, first of all, I was director of state police, but I had a lot of help. Well, Lynn, before we get to talking about the raids and all that jazz, I know you're an historian like I am. Let's go back to the early days of, of Hot Springs history. Well, for, uh, for over 100 years, beginning back in the 1870s, um, they had, uh, they had uh, gambling. Frank Flynn, as a matter of fact, was the boss gambler. Uh, They've always had a boss gambler in Hot Springs for some reason or another who said who could go into business and who couldn't. Uh, as a matter of fact, right down at the Arlington Hotel there, Frank Flynn and his brothers, uh, Bob and Billy, I believe it were, was, uh, they were going to uh, ambush a guy by the name of Major Duran, who was a wild card. He came into uh, Hot Springs and was going to open up a couple of clubs. One was the palace and the other one, I don't remember the name, but they told him, Frank Flynn told him no. Frank Flynn, I think, looked on it as being a usurpation of his power. And uh, they set up a, a sniper's nest in the Arlington Hotel overlooking Central Avenue. And they were going to ambush Major Duran. And Major Duran was no choir boy. He had killed several people himself. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I thought it was a funny story. He, uh, I think it was Kentucky, he was uh, a landlord, went into his apartment, and he was in the apartment with two body women. <laughs> I don't know why the landlord took exception to that, but he went in with his gun drawn, and uh, Major Duran drew his gun and shot him dead uh, before he could pull the trigger. So uh, they, uh, as a matter of fact, down at the Arlington, uh, a maid came to make the room up. Uh, they had taken the room in the name of a man from uh, Canada. Why well, they chose somebody named from Canada, you know, I don't know, but they chose the, uh, uh, this fictitious name and, and Frank Flynn and his brothers and his uh, gang this uh, maid goes to uh, make up the room and they won't let her in. They tell her to don't worry about it. So she goes and reports to the uh, manager of the Arlington Hotel 
that uh, they won't let her make up the room. And so he goes down, and this is all documented. This is all documented in the newspapers of that day. We're lucky to have had the Arkansas Gazette being the oldest newspaper west of the Mississippi. It started documenting all of these things. Uh, the, uh, he told them they would have to leave. And so, uh, so they, they left, but later they got into a gunfight right there on Central Avenue. And uh, Frank Flynn's two brothers, I think both of them were killed. And the cab driver, the hack driver, the buggy driver, an innocent person, he was killed. And, uh, and then uh, Frank Flynn and uh, uh, Major Duran made up, shook hands like gentlemen they weren't, and uh, decided they would not do this anymore. And uh, so something happened to the truce. Frank Flynn uh, sent word that he was calling out Major Duran. Well, he didn't realize Duran would get the word so fast. But within a matter of an hour or so, Duran was ready to meet him on the street. And uh, Frank Flynn and Major Duran met on Central Avenue. Frank Flynn probably used the first uh, bullet resistant vest in the history of the world, if you don't count mail. He, he said it was a coat of mail that he had on his chest. And uh, he had two coats on. He had one coat over this coat of mail. And then he had an overcoat. And he tried to draw his weapon and he couldn't get it out from those, from those coats. And so Duran shot him, shot at him. And uh, three puffs of smoke, the bystanders said three puffs of smoke came from his chest and it was hitting that vest, and he coughed up blood for days after that. But, uh, uh, so Duran was, uh, uh, was no dummy. He, uh, Flynn hollered at him and said, give me a chance. And uh, uh, Duran said, take one. <laughs> He pulled out his pistol, but uh, not being a dummy, Duran has already gotten behind the post, and the post took the round rather than uh, rather than Duran. Yeah, Flynn and Duran would get into a few more scrums down the road, but mostly they were arguing about who was going to control the whorehouses or body houses, as as you call it. But I usually try to explain it off to. Uh, visitors to the museum as extreme pleasures or there was a lot of love in hot springs i guess women in wagering made up a pretty good recipe for success here uh, as a matter of fact uh, gambling brought i'm not sure whether prostitution brought gambling or gambling brought prostitution but uh, there were uh, bawdy houses uh, houses of prostitution all over all over town and Matter of fact, you might be interested in the story of Gracie, Gracie Goldstein. Gracie Goldstein was, had, uh, notwithstanding Maxine Jones saying she had the best house in the country, <laughs> Gracie Goldstein claimed that this is earlier, 
claimed that she had the best house in the country and uh, creepy carpus uh, flew from the airport out here when flying was fairly new in the 30s. Creepy Carpus uh, would fly from different places, rob a bank, get back on that private plane, come back to Laura, I mean, come back to uh, Hot Springs. Now, Gracie Goldstein was his, uh, was his girlfriend, and uh, he bought her a uh, car from Roger Clinton, uh, Raymond, I'm sorry, Raymond Clinton, Raymond Clinton, uh, and uh, they were having trouble getting a license for it. They were going to go out in Blossom, Texas is where Gracie was from, and she was going out to get uh, her niece and turn her out. She was going to be a prostitute here in Hot Springs, and they couldn't get a license, so uh, the uh, chief police, Wakeland, took the license off of his wife's car and put on Gracie Goldstein's car so they could go to Blossom, Texas. Well, the old history is, uh, you know, something that you and I both love, and you really can't learn how to deal with the future if you don't know the history. One of those old adages, you, get, you don't know where you're going if you don't know where you've been. But let's talk about 1967. I mean, that is... Uh, some amazing American history, not just Arkansas history. And as you mentioned earlier, you had a lot of help before you came over here to uh, shut down gambling. Where, where did that help come from? Well, from the uh, state policeman who had experienced uh, the disappointments in coming to Hot Springs, uh, the modus operandi then was to come over and get, uh, uh, make sure they were in operation, the clubs were in operation, and then get the uh, uh, municipal judge or somebody to sign a warrant, search warrant. And then by the time they wooled them around uh, and they went out to the clubs, all of the machines were gone. Uh, there were napkins placed over the uh, over the places where the machines were. Um, I knew about the, uh, about the history of Hot Springs. I knew about the mob, uh, the gangsters, and the people who populated uh, Garland County, or at least Hot Springs, over the years because I was from Texarkana. But um, notwithstanding that, uh, it was the late part of August of 1967 when we, I had warned the uh, casino operators that we were going to in, enforce all of the laws. That's what I told Wynn Rockefeller, that I wouldn't take the job unless uh, I could enforce all of the laws. Um, he said, that's exactly what I want. And that's the last time we ever discussed uh, enforcing the law, hot springs, gambling, casinos, slot machines or whatever. Uh, we heard that they were operating. As a matter of fact, you could just walk down the uh, street down here on Central Avenue and hear the action going on. Uh, roulette wheels and the crap tables and, and all of that. And uh, we came over and had I had uh, undercover uh, state troopers to go to these particular clubs to find out for sure that they were operating. 
And as a matter of fact, we were, uh, we were parked the command cars. Our command post was out by the Safeway store on uh, Central Avenue on the other side of the uh, Highway 70. And uh, at that time, I was trying to make a decision of how we could get in and keep the machines uh, where they were rather than doing what was normally done, and that was to get a warrant and, uh, uh, and then go find an empty building. So just almost in an instant, uh, it occurred to me that uh, the thing to do, we had, I had said, and I really didn't intend to get people. I intended to get machines and the instruments of the casinos, slot machines, roulette wheels, and uh, dice tables and whatever. So, um, so almost in an instant it came to me that the state law uh, gave state police jurisdiction right up to the doorway of wherever it was. That's the front door and the back door. We had jurisdiction. So uh, uh, none of the undercover uh, people could get into the clubs. They were smart enough that they knew we'd be shooting for them, you know. So uh, they uh, kept all of the uh, people out that didn't have uh, either out-of-state driver's license or didn't have a woman with them or whatever. They, uh, uh, they were smart enough that they knew we'd be shooting to get into the clubs. So uh, it occurred to me, since we are going for equipment, we're not going for people because they wool you around. They send you down to testify in a case and then they set it off and you, so you send two troopers back down again and, and so they just finally wear you down. So uh, I called, I went over to a pay phone and that was before uh, cell phones, that was before the internet, that was before uh, the web or, or whatever, you know, the only thing we had to rely on was an incomplete, inconsistent radio uh, uh, communications system and uh, we were extremely careful talked in codes um, didn't uh, uh, didn't dare let the Hot Springs Police Department or the Sheriff's Office or anybody know that we were even over here and so uh, I went to the uh, uh, the uh, telephone booth and called uh, Little Rock headquarters, state police headquarters, and uh, the, uh, the radio operator didn't believe who I was. I'd only been in office since August the 1st, and this was about August the 17th, I believe it was. My God, how old were you then? I'd been a special agent with the FBI for six and a half years, and uh, I was 33 when I was appointed, and I was 34 when I was sworn in. And he said, are you sure? And so he asked me a couple of test questions to make sure that I was, and I told him to send some, uh, some blue and white uh, uniform troopers over. So uh, I told him to send them with the red lights on. There were red lights then instead of blue lights. And to, uh, uh, report to the uh, head of the uh, highway patrol, Major McKee, 
Um, so they did, and their orders were to go in the front and the backs, ingress and egress uh, of all of these clubs and let people go. Let anybody walk out that wanted to walk out. Don't let anybody in, but anybody wanted to leave, let them leave. But don't let them take any books, don't let them take any equipment or whatever. And uh, so when we got all of those people in place, we had more or less taken over Central Avenue, these clubs, uh, Bridge Street Club, the Ohio Club, and uh, the other clubs that we raided uh, that night or that morning early. So in five minutes, uh, uh, we were getting ready to, uh, uh, to make the raids. We were getting ready to go in and take the equipment because we already had them surrounded and whatever. And uh, we were right down on Central Avenue, just off of Central Avenue down where the convention center is now. And, um, and another person who was the attorney, they come running down the middle of the street and wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. Hey, Lynn, this would be a good chance, since we're talking about waiting, to let Steve uh, deliver us an important message from our sponsor. What's up, Steve? The Garland Towers Senior Living Facility on Oriole Street, just off Park Avenue, was formerly the Jack Tar Motel and Bathhouse. It was the last bathhouse and the longest run of the thermal water in the National Park. Designed by renowned local architect I. Granger McDaniel, the hotel was owned by retired Mafia Kingpin Frank Costello. This moment in history is brought to you by the Gangster Museum of America and the Hattery, the oldest name in Hot Springs headwear, located at 510 Central Avenue. Okay, Lynn, you're about to attempt to close down a $100 million a year operation, according to the FBI, that may or may not be ran by the Mafia, and two guys are running down the middle of Central Avenue in the middle of the night, waving their hands to try to stop you. What happened? As it turned out, the search warrants in Arkansas have to be served in the daylight hours unless exigent circumstances uh, indicate that they've got to be served at night. So instead of letting us go ahead and make that mistake and have to give, those, give that stuff back, uh, he caught us and inked in can be served in the nighttime. So, uh, as I said, that was much to his credit. And uh, that's not well known, I'm sure, in Hot Springs that, that he did that. But uh, he did. We went into the clubs. As a matter of fact, uh, went into the uh, Ohio Club. I broke into the Bridge Street Club uh, using uh, uh, what I call, what we call in Texas, a tour tool, and uh, broke the uh, broke the front window out and and went in the Bridge Street Club. Everybody left Bridge Street, and we started unloading uh, or loading up machines and things like that. And then I said, "Well, let's go up to the Ohio Club." I'd never been in these clubs, uh, so I didn't know where they were or what was in them or whatever, but. Um, we went up to the Ohio Club and the sheriff was leaned up against one of the uh, crap tables. <laughs> and he said, well, Colonel, if I'd have known you were coming and if I'd known this was here, I would have come and helped you. And so I told, I told the sheriff, I said, Sheriff, if you didn't know it was here, 
you're too dangerous for me to take you on any raids. And, and that's the reason I didn't let you know. He said, if I'd known you were coming, I would have helped you. So I got a call the next day or maybe two days later from the, I think it was the head of the Civil Service Commission and said, uh, you've gone too far this time. Uh, you've just gone too far lying about this. And, and so uh, we're gonna get a subpoena for you. As you can probably suspect, there's more to the story. Tune in next time for part two of Colonel Lynn Davis. And maybe this time, we'll get a clue on who the informant might have been. See you next time on TGMOA After Dark.